Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome back to another episode of Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic. Rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts about how they would recommend thinking about that decision. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please also consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Today's topic is violence in, in the workplace. And uh, in, in preparing for this, this, this program, um, I, I did a little bit of, of, of research, and I, I was surprised to learn these statistics. According to the National Safety Council, assaults are the fourth leading cause of workplace deaths in the United States. In 2017, assaults resulted in 18,400 injuries and 458 fatalities. Um, and, and that is a, that, to, to me, that was a, a stunning number. And you know, anybody listening to this podcast, we, we've heard of the, uh, of the catastrophic workplace incidents, um, you know, often a, a disgruntled or terminated employee that, that comes back to the workplace with a gun and, and, and ends in, in, in tragedy. But what I've learned in, in doing background research for the show and, and also thanks to my long, um, uh, and dear relationship with, uh, with our guest, whom I'll introduce in a minute, um, this is a much more common, um, phenomenon than I think most people, uh, realize. And, and maybe that's good. Maybe if we realized how dangerous it can be to actually go to work, we wouldn't want to go to work anymore. So maybe that's a good thing. But, but thankfully there are people like, uh, uh, our guest today that, that help people, uh, both prepare for these incidents, uh, mitigate the risk of them happening and the damage occurs that when they do, and also inevitably when, when somebody kind of falls through the cracks, um, picking up the pieces when it happens. And so you know, to that end, it is my immense pleasure to introduce, uh, again, my, my dear friend and, and longtime client, uh, Bruce Blythe, who is an internationally acclaimed crisis management expert. He is the owner and executive chairman of R3 Continuum that provides employers with integrated crisis readiness, crisis response, and employee return-to-work services. They have assisted hundreds of companies worldwide with crisis, workplace violence, and business continuity planning, training, and exercising. They also provide consultations worldwide for diffusing serious disputes, hostilities, and workplace violence threats. On average, they respond on-site to 1,300 international workplace crises of all sorts per month. Finally, they work with insurers and large employers in accelerating employee return to work for workers' comp, disability, and non-occupational injury claims through North America and Australia. Mr. Blythe has been personally involved in crises such as, and by personally involved meaning resolving them, um, such as the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, 
the September 11th uh, terror attacks, mass murders at the U.S. Postal Service, and the Oklahoma City and Boston Marathon bombings, commercial air crashes, rescue of kidnap and ransom hostages in Colombia and Ecuador, hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, floods, and reputational crises. He serves as a consultant to numerous Fortune executive, Fortune 500 executives and managers in strategic crisis leadership preparedness and response. Wildly, widely regarded as a thought leader in the crisis management and business continuity industries, Bruce is author of Blindsided, a manager's guide to crisis leadership, book which I've read, by the way, and I, I, I firmly recommend. He has served in the military police for the U.S. Marine Corps, is a certified clinical psychologist, and has been a consultant to the FBI on workplace violence and terrorism. Bruce has appeared on NBC's Today Show, CNN, ABC's 2020, CBS's 48 Hours. Pretty much, um, if they ever talk about this subject, Bruce is the guy that they call. And, and I can tell you that, you know, when he speaks, he, he, he commands a pretty high fee for doing that. So I appreciate him giving us a slight discount for coming on the program. Um, I, I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. Bruce knows what he's talking about. Bruce Bly, thanks so much for coming on the program. Well, you just made me nervous, Mike. <laughs> now, I doubt that. I, ver- I know you too well. I very much doubt that. Um, you and I have known each other since it was R1. Um, it's been a while since it got to R3 continuum. Um, but, but let's, let's start with a, a little bit of a, uh, a, a little bit of a, uh, of a vocabulary lesson for the audience. When, when we hear about workplace violence, you know, what, what forms does that take? As I mentioned in the intro, we all have heard about the gunman coming to the, the workplace and, and shooting lots of people. Is that the most prevalent form or what other forms of workplace violence do, do you encounter and, and try to help mitigate or resolve? Sure. Well, the shootings are the um, the least prevalent, actually. The most prevalent uh, forms of workplace violence are things like uh, verbal and nonverbal threats, uh, threat of violence, intimidation, bullying, uh, uh, some of the sexual harassment kinds of um, or sexual assault or sexual violation kind of issues that be where people feel threatened. Um, <clears throat> stalking is certainly one of those things. And sometimes it's with a vengeance, and other times it's uh, what they call erotomania, where somebody has an unrelenting attraction to, usually it's a male toward a female, and uh, won't let go, and they just keep they just keep stalking or you know whatever, and that could be uh, both physically as well as uh, on uh, you know social media or, or emails or whatever. Uh, fights certainly play into that hostilities of all sorts. Those are the things that are most likely to occur in the workplace. And many of those things then are precursors to more serious uh, levels of violence. Uh, the good news is that the most people who make threats, most people who are hostile do not come in with a gun. So that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is we don't know which one of those people uh, are going to be the ones that end up shooting. Uh, it's, we have a hard time. Uh, there, there is no psychological test or, or list in the newspaper or whatever that, that tells us who's going to be the, the shooter, if you will, in the workplace. You know, and... and, and to your point, it, it's so much more common than I realized. Uh, I, I actually was in uh, was in Salt Lake City last week for a conference, and as it turned out, I had a layover. Actually, the first time in my life, I had a, a flight canceled on me. I had to, to be shipped off to a hotel, 
and uh, I was I, I was in the bar having a, a beverage. I happened to sit next down next to a lady who uh, has a a a, uh, a company in in California, and we got to talking a little bit. And she was on her way where she had just fired somebody at one of their offices, and that person shoved her tried to choke her and, and ultimately, of course, had to be separated and escorted out of the building. Um, and, and she told me that's something that's happened to her multiple times. And, you know, my jaw just dropped in spite of the conversations you and I have had. You know, it's happened to her so many times that she had almost a nonchalance about it. And I, I, I was stunned. You know, how common is that where maybe there are some, some workplaces where, Things like events like this can be so common that um, you know you almost get numb to it. Well, uh, I don't know that you're actually numb to it. I would be surprised if she's numb to it. Uh, she can be nonchalant all she wants, but the fact of the matter is that uh, she's been lucky enough that she survived these things and not been hurt. So I think you know sometimes when you just dodge a bullet enough times, you think, "Well, I'm not going to get hit." The good news is that most of the time, even people that are hostile that have triggers like being fired or feeling unfairly treated or whatever it may be that, uh, they, that, that they've got a grievance about, most people don't actually act out violently in a very severe manner. So, you know, there's certainly some, some warning signs there. I would recommend to her that she take a look at what can she do to address those kinds of things uh, to, to keep them to be ready. You know, so many times it's kind of like, well, I hope they don't get violent. And then they do. And it's like, oh, my gosh. And they get out of it by the skin of their teeth. But there's some things that you can do to set the, you know, set up the room and set up the entire thing about who's there and maybe even have, uh, you know, security or a police officer that uh, may be not visible or maybe visible. It depends on how you want to do it. Um, you know, but to actually plan out the contingencies, I think, is a really good idea. And we help people do that. And so many times we know they don't think about it. You don't like to think about things like that being worse than what you've experienced before. So, uh, and to that point, I kind of want to finish up the vocabulary part, because I know another another part of the business that at least you've dealt with, or this, this um, scenario that you've dealt with in the past has been violence that occurs due to crime, a, a convenience store robbery, um, something of, of that nature. That's sort of a different animal, isn't it? Well, sure. Um, and, and it's really hard to, to, to stop those kinds of things. Now, you know, retail, uh, you know, customer service jobs, certainly taxi drivers, uh, less the Uber and the Lyft type drivers because, you know, the people are identified that go in. A taxi driver, you know, takes somebody that's anonymous and they don't know who they're picking up. Uh, police certainly have, uh, you know, they're in, in the line of fire a lot. And interestingly, a, a, a real hotbed for violence is uh, in medical uh, arenas, uh, hospitals, certainly emergency um, rooms, uh, that sort of thing. A uh, lot of violence in those situations. Yeah, you know, I, I, I read something about that, that in, in fact, with healthcare facilities and, and even nursing home facilities, the violence tends to be fairly prevalent. What, what are the kind of the scenarios that, that kind of set people off to that degree in your experience? Well, you know, it, when we talk about somebody just coming in from the public that's anonymous, that may or may not have anything to do with the workplace, uh, then, you know, certainly there's nothing you can do about that. If a workplace has a high uh, percentage of women in the workplace, there's uh, increased uh, likelihood of domestic violence coming into the workplace. It happens a lot. Uh, it could happen to men with, with you know, with a strange uh, 
a female spouse or, or girlfriend, or whatever, but that's less likely. Uh, but in those situations where you know that the person, um, you know, you know them or you, you've, you've got a relationship with them, you know, typically the, it, it helps to understand the violent mind. I think this is a big piece of what's missing because so many times the naive organizations, when they have a threat, they think about, all right, or temporary restraining order. Let's call the police and have them arrested and let's get some guards with guns or without guns either way. Uh, maybe some cameras as well. And that really, if you stop and think about it, a restraining order doesn't stop anybody that, um, that, uh, would would likely create violence. You think of uh, Sung Cho, who's the, the kid that shot all the, the people at the Virginia Tech. I mean, they talked about having a restraining order on him because there was a, a young co-ed that was feeling intimidated by him. But that would have stopped him. I mean, uh, to, to violate a restraining order is no big deal. Uh, you know, when when you when actually what you're doing is out there shooting people. So, you know, those kinds of things aren't really what's going to stop them. To understand the violent mind, there's basically three things. We see a common um, mental patterns. It's interesting how again and again and again, as we deal with threatening individuals, the same mental algorithm and the same mental patterns are there. What is it that sets them off? Number one, they get ego problems, okay? And what I mean by that is it's, they have extremely or profoundly low self-esteem. Now, I'm not talking about the the kind of insecurities we all have. I'm I'm too short or I weigh too much or don't like my hair. We all have that, okay? I'm talking about people that have profoundly low self-esteem and then they don't get into self-acceptance or they don't deal with it. Instead, what they do is they try to feel superior to other people and then it becomes very important that they must win. They must stay ahead of other people and they, and, and they, they have to keep blowing up that leaky balloon that is their ego. And if anybody challenges them, then and that happens in in, um, in in traffic, you know, and then somebody gets cut off. I mean, just like you're not going to do something that's going to cause me any inconvenience. So the ego is one one piece of it. That the ego, low self esteem. So one thing you want to do, of course, is build them up. The second thing is they need to feel heard and understood. So many times, and like with this woman that you met in in, in Salt Lake, uh, you know, the the issue here is that so many times they don't feel heard and understood, and because they feel cut off, they, and it, what happens is then they, they resort to whatever they can to even the score, and too many times it's hostility or violence. So you want to let them feel heard and understood, because they almost always feel like they need to be heard and understood. Even Sung Cho, this kid in, in Virginia Tech, had a mutism disorder or whatever. People said they never heard the guy talk. He was just a painfully shy, apparently. But even he left a, a manifesto on a videotape in his uh, in his room uh, because he wanted to be heard even from the grave because he knew what he's going to do. The third thing, so is ego, is heard and understood. And then the third thing is they tend to feel unfairly treated. We all have a strong sense of right and wrong, and they, they tend to feel unfairly treated. So what can we do to come up with a win-win? That doesn't mean we're going to give the person the job back when they got fired, but it may be we're not going to challenge your unemployment or we're not going to uh, – your unemployment compensation, uh, those kinds of things. We're going, to, we're going to give you a neutral reference if you uh, have somebody call us for, when you're looking for another job. Those are the kinds of things that can help uh, – you, you understand where they're coming from and it can help reduce the likelihood that they're going to take the next step. So uh, we, we talked about um, uh, health care facilities, a little bit about uh, taxi cabs. Are, are there other 
kind of industries and types of workplaces that tend to be more prone to violence? You know, for example, do, uh, you know, I work for a CPA firm. Do I need to be afraid walking in one day and get popped in the mouth? Or um, what other kind of high-risk industries out there? Well, um, you know, um, it's a little bit like swimming in the ocean. You hear about the shark attacks and they go, oh my gosh, I'm not going in the ocean. A lot of people are afraid to do that. You know, the fact of the matter is statistically the odds are very, very low that you're going to get uh, you know, attacked by a shark if you swim in the ocean. The same thing about going to work. The overwhelming odds are that you're not going to have to worry, Mike, when you go into work or anybody else. You know, that the odds are that, that, that nothing's going to happen to you from a from a shooting standpoint. There may be some hostilities and maybe some uncomfortable situations, uh, but the serious kinds of workplace violence are very unlikely. Um, but, you know, I think back at what are the kinds of organizations that are most prone Back in the in the 90s, I was involved in helping the, the U.S. Postal Service with their mass shootings, the multiple mass shootings that they had one after another. I remember another those. In different locations. And, you know, while I, I certainly wasn't the only architect of helping them come up with a solution, it was a multifaceted. One of the things that was most important that actually once they set up a workplace violence program, including a policy, you know, training for supervisors, uh, procedures, a threat notification system, all those different kinds of things, the U.S. Postal Service went for eight years without another shooting. That was with 750,000 employees at the time, huge employer. So what is it that, you know, that, that increases the likelihood that, that for like the Postal Service and other organizations? Usually, uh, in probably the thing that helped the Postal Service the most was the fact that, that the supervisors were promoted from being a letter carrier to supervisor with no training whatsoever on how to, how to manage people, how to let them feel fairly treated, how to give them uh, feel cared for, that sort of thing, give them positive regard. So in those toxic environments where a supervisor or management is is hostile toward employees or the employees feel unfairly treated, there's that word again, they don't feel heard and understood, they feel disempowered. Um, those are the kinds of places where you're more likely to have somebody to well up and here they come. Uh, so I guess we'll stop right there with that. Yeah. And, and let me ask you this, cause I, you know, I can think of other, I'll even say with my own industry, a lot of what you're describing is, is frequent in the accounting industry. You know, we, we tend to promote people based on the fact they're really good at auditing financial statements and writing out 1040 forms. Um, but we don't necessarily do a great job of training them to be managers, especially if we're not in, in the national firms. And, you know, we have our busy season. So people are putting in 60, 70 hours a week and, you know, thank God I'm hitting my head, which is made of wood, uh, that, you know, to my <laughs> knowledge in, in the history of our firm, we've never had a workplace violence incident or anything like that. Um, I wonder, but I wonder if another element is that maybe you also kind of feel trapped in your job that if, you know, if you work for the postal service, we know the benefits they have, the skills may or may not transfer easily to a private organization. You know, seniority is just sort of everything that, you know, you don't even necessarily have that, that escape valve necessarily that you can just say, you know, take this job and shove it. I'm going to find another one. Do you, do you think that's a, a factor as well? Absolutely. Sure. Um, and, and, and again, if in fact, you know, the, the job is such that you feel like I just can't get another job with this kind of 
benefits or with the uh, seniority I've got and I got to start all over again or I can't make the kind of money I'm making here so I'm stuck with it but I'm really really frustrated with the way I'm being I feel like I'm being treated uh again it, you know it goes into the ego issues you know that I feel like I'm marginalized I feel like I'm not heard and understood and uh or I can talk to them and there's no action uh I feel unfairly treated those are the kinds of things where some people are going to well up Interestingly, the people that don't say anything that dwell up many times are the ones who are going to come up with the, with the serious violence versus the uh, the people who are verbal about it and make maybe make threats or are loud and boisterous. Doesn't mean those kinds of people aren't going to be violent someday, but it's that cold, calculating person that doesn't say anything uh, many times are the ones that may. Uh, be the problem. So you need to kind of draw them out. You know, um, one of the ways that that we diffuse threatening situations, we don't get the easy ones. You know, somebody's uh, you know got the guns. They showed the coworker in the car and uh, in the trunk of the car, and this is what I'm going to use on the supervisor and that kind of thing. It's like they may have got a history of violence. They don't call us on the easy ones. We get called on the hard ones. One of the approaches we take in dealing with these things is is you know, there's no psychological test. There's no, there's no way to really know for sure, uh, you know, who's going to be violent and who's not. So one of the things you try to do is get inside their head. And the way to do that is to, you know, make contact with them. If, if Mike, if you were a person that was making threats, you felt unfairly treated at work, maybe you got fired, whatever, you know, if I were to contact you, maybe by phone or face-to-face, however we would like to do it, as a neutral third party and say something to the effect of, you know, I'm, I'm, my name is Bruce Blythe. Uh, I'm a neutral third party that's been called in by XYZ Management. And uh, basically, you know, they say they understand you may feel unfairly treated or have a concern with, you know, the whatever's going on. And so what I'd like to do, my job is to hear and understand your side of the situation, knowing there's two sides to every story. And my job will be to report that back to management to make sure that this situation is handled fairly. Um, Let me ask you a question now, like you've been asking me, how would you respond if if you had somebody contact you like that? If, oh, um, I mean, I I would like to think positively uh and 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 look i'm i'm a repressed irish catholic and i'll be the first to admit it so <laughs> you know I'm, yeah. I, I'm i i don't own a gun they terrify me but you know i do kind of have that that personality of uh uh of 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 internalizing and sort of have the long fuse and my my my, my teenager will tell you that you know when the long fuse sort of hits zero it, it's not something he wants to be around so i do think right. that that um uh, you know, I think that engagement makes a big difference. You just got to have that that sort of, you know, that, that safety valve. Well, what happens in real life, because we've done this just hundreds and hundreds of times with, with individuals, is you think, well, here's this guy calling. I don't know who he is or contacting me, and I don't know who he is uh, or her. And so, uh, you know, I wouldn't talk to them. In reality, we can hardly get all that out. That my little scenario I just gave you there before they start talking. Sometimes they say, I don't want to talk to you, but, and then they're still talking 30 minutes later. We know they want to feel heard and understood. We know they want to feel fairly treated. We know that if we build them up uh, and find some good things about them, I do everything I can to like these people when I'm dealing with them. People don't like, you know, the antisocial hostile person. And so here we're in a situation where we can actually 
let this person feel heard and understood, fairly treated, uh, you know, and they're not going to get the job back, but at least they, if that's what they're after. But uh, what we can do is maybe come up with a compromise. We can better assess where they're coming from and what their intentions are. We can talk to them about uh, alternatives. We can serve as conduit of communication so they feel empowered. When, they, we, when we pass a word on to management, of course, management has more information on how better to handle this situation. So, you know, it, it just we understand what the violent mind, and therefore we know how to deal with it and how to help companies deal with that as well. So I'd like to go back to the, the, the Postal Service um, example. I didn't realize – I knew you'd worked on it. I didn't realize you had that that uh, kind of impact. And, you know, it, and it's worth kind of refreshing that that – I mean, the Postal Service's issues were so bad that the American lexicon adopted the term going postal, right, to describe somebody that had just, you know, flown off the handle basically. So – should every organization have a plan like that, or should you know do, do, do large organizations need more in detail plans? Do smaller have maybe more sketchy ones or more kind of outline oriented ones? I'll say it that way. You know, how, how if I'm a business owner, I'm listening to this conversation. How do I think about whether or not I need to retain you or somebody like you to put something like that in place? Well. Um... Okay, so it, it, you know, the Postal Service had what was it, something like 15 mass shootings uh, in different locations around their system, and you know, once they came up with a with a comprehensive workplace violence program, uh, they it, which the key component there was to train supervisors and how to manage people and how to do it in a caring, you know, fair manner. Uh, and not quite so autocratic. So, you know, they went for eight years with 750,000 employees. And the one employee that broke the eight-year record was somebody that hadn't been with the company for three years. She was uh, uh, living in another in another uh, city, went back to Southern California three years later. She was known for howling at the moon, talking to the moon, uh, filling up her car uh, with, with gasoline naked. I could go down the list. This is a crazy lady, okay? So it wasn't really their fault that an ex-employee came in and did the shooting even eight years later. They had a very effective program, uh, the proof's in the pudding. So if if I'm an employer, it's like, all right, well, wait a minute, I got workplace violence, you know, it's like, you know, all right, so Bruce here is saying that just, you know, having a, a temporary restraining order, which isn't going to necessarily going to work, if I'm going to shoot somebody, a restraining order is not going to stop it. It may stop some people from you know, getting together, which is going to cause fights, which may lead into other kinds of violence. So I'm not saying they're not effective, but they don't, they're not an end all be all. Call the police. If I get arrested because I made a threat or because I am threatening, first of all, I mean, I have done enough that I'm going to get uh, arrested. And police don't like to even deal with these things. If, they're, if somebody hadn't done anything yet, then they, they want to go deal with things where somebody's already done something. So that's not necessarily going to work. And of course, having guards there, and most places don't want to have guns there. So, you know, a guard with a wall walkie-talkie is not going to stop anybody, nor is a camera, that it really has an intent. So what do you need to have as a healthy company 
that wants to address this issue. Basically, four things I would recommend. Number one, you want to have a policy that is well publicized about workplace violence. There's a lot of really good workplace violence policies out there. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much down to an art and science now of what ought to be included there. It's different in, in, in different organizations, but certainly getting access to a policy, something be pretty easy if you want to just do it on the cheap. The second thing then is a threat notification system. A threat notification system is one where employees understand that if there's a threatening situation, what they can do, and it's a gut-level feeling. Many times the gut-level feeling is what tells you more than anything else. Yeah, they may make a threat. Yeah, they may act intimidating. Yes, they may have a history of violence, which are all indicators, okay, that they may be violent. But it's that gut-level feeling says, you know, this is a person I think could really do it. So if you have a threat notification system that people will use where they feel comfortable doing it, I don't want to report somebody if they're going to say, well, you know, Bruce said you were making threats. Now I'm on the hit list. Don't want to do that. So a good policy threat notification system. And now if they get notified, you better have a threat management team that's, that's trained, that ha- has a standardized guidelines, which is the fourth thing. But I guess we clumped that all together. A well-trained threat management team that has standardized checklists on how to handle this thing beyond a restraining order and call the police, you know, but some guidelines on how do you diffuse these situations? What are best practices? Those are the things that you need to have at a bare minimum, I would say, a policy threat notification notification system, and then a threat management team with standardized guidelines. Okay, good. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about restraining orders. It's come up a couple of times, and, and you know, I, I agree with you. They don't seem to be that effective, and I think one of the reasons they're that they're not that effective is that a shooter seems intent on not coming out alive uh, from that incident themselves. It seems more often than not they take their own lives or they they wind up you know not being apprehended uh, alive. Uh, you know, I'm I'm guessing that's also another reason a restraining order is not all that effective. You can't enforce it you know when they're dead. Is is that a common pathology for the the workplace shooter that you know, they're just planning on doing as much destruction as they can on the way out? Forty uh, percent of the time, according to, to uh, you know, the government statistics, yes. Forty uh, percent of the time, people commit suicide that do this kind of thing. Uh, you know, half the time, uh, you know, they, the, the, the others that are still alive, uh, you know, police officers may kill them. So, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that certainly it's a risky business. If you want to live for long, you don't want to be a workplace shooter. But with that said, um, you know, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that it doesn't really matter if they're going to act out violently and then decide to kill themselves or not. In any case, the, the fact of the matter is that they feel unfairly treated. They want to, they want to, commit a vengeance or whatever, or sometimes they just want to feel significant. I think of so many of these uh, school shootings, these kids who feel like a nobody, that they're, you know, they, they have, um, you know, they're an outcast, whatever. In their minds, they would rather feel significant in a negative way and even die out of it than to feel like a nobody. And again, they, they, it's, it's related to ego. It's related to feeling unfairly treated. It's feeling like they're not heard and understood. And, uh, here they come. We're talking to Bruce Blythe, who is the, uh, uh, chairman of R3 Continuum, one of the world's leading experts on, uh, on workplace violence. 
Um, I want to be respectful of your time. I just have a couple more more, more questions if you can hang in there. Um, sure. W- w- one is, you know, uh, of course, even with the best of intentions, workplace violence happens. Um, h- how how can you and how can a company help kind of pick up the pieces after a workplace violent incident? Where, where, where do you kind of, if that happens in my office, where do I kind of go from there? Well, uh, you know, we, we respond, you mentioned 1,300 times. I think it's up to 1,600 times per month now to, re, to uh, crisis situations of all sorts. One of the common entry points for us and one of the common calls we get is for crisis counseling. And so, you know, it, there's a, a social expectation, I guess, of, of in the workplace that if, in fact, something traumatic like this happens, employers are expected to respond with a caring response, and so many times they don't know what that is. Uh, if it, you know an employer that doesn't have a, a, a preparedness ready for this kind of thing, they're going to say, you know, our hearts go out to the families, blah blah blah, and it it rings hollow at this point. So instead, you know, caring is not <clears throat> a feeling; it's it's behavioral, and so employees must feel like they're cared for and certainly bringing in crisis counselors who are specialists in this kind of arena uh, is helpful. One of the things that uh, I remember, I, I keep going back to Virginia Tech, I guess I'm stuck on that today, but um, you know, the, the, it, there were so many counselors that were saying, I can help, I can help, here I am. You know, the, the biggest issue is getting keeping counselors away. So you certainly want to have people that know what they're doing, that are skilled at this. Uh, you don't want a, you know, a plastic surgeon doing your heart surgery. And the same kind of thing, just because you're a mental health professional doesn't mean you know how to handle these situations. So one thing is to address the needs of those people who have been victimized. Uh, and it's not just the employees at work. It might be the families. It might be the people that are in the hospitals that have been injured. Uh, who knows whom, what else? The second thing is that management must be doing the right things as well. And so a big piece of what we do is, is helping companies understand, and company management understand, how do you show caring? How do you do the right things? How soon do you bring employees back? What do you need to do before you bring them back to work? How do you show in, 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 uh, caring over time? And how do you assess people who may have delayed responses? Uh, that sort of thing. So, you know, it, 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 it's, it's really comes from, from preparedness, but at a minimum, if you're not prepared, then get a, get somebody in there that has been there before, uh, that can help out. Just one quick other point about this, and that is that Syracuse University several years ago did a study about what leaders and organizations are the best crisis managers. And one of the the correlates they came up with was that uh, those managers who had uh, an outside neutral third party who could help out, that was trusted, okay, and, you know, that, that was not emotionally involved in this thing, that had an idea of how to handle this thing, it was most helpful. Because when you're inside the crisis bubble, it's really hard to see outside that bubble and what's going on and what their perspectives are and what you should be saying and how you're being perceived and how to address this thing. It's a whirlwind, and it's unexpected, and it's high consequence, and people are watching. Go on down the list. It's very difficult if you don't have somebody on the outside that's kind of help steer the direction uh, for you uh, to at least assist, not to take over, but to assist with management and what to do. 
Bruce, I could, I could, as soften as the case, I could talk to you three hours of this, and we still wouldn't run out of of material. But I, I know you got you got things to do, and you have one of of sixteen hundred incidents to respond to um, this month. So <laughs> not all. I can't do them all. Thank yeah. you. Um, I got I got a good network. But yeah, um, but uh, uh, you know, how can people contact you for more information if they want to learn more about this topic or more about the kind of services you guys provide? Well, uh, R3 Continuum, I mean, just look them up on, online. Uh, a lot of times people don't know how to spell Continuum, which has two U's in it. Uh, so, uh, you know, our, our, our web address is r3c.com. Probably the best way to do it. Uh, you know, just contact us that way. All of our contact information is there at r3c.com. Bruce, thank you so much. And uh, next time you're in Atlanta, I owe you dinner. Hey, that sounds good to me. <laughs> um, I'm coming soon. There, excellent. So that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Bruce Blythe so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.